7. At 9, an hour of global sounds on Afropop. Then at 10, Selector, Starkey, and DJ Chuck spend four hours of funk, hip-hop, and more on Old School Sessions. Saturday nights only on Radio Catskill. Let me WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. Support for WJFF comes from Two Queens, offering coffee, tea, and bees. Located in Pete's Plaza, Narrowsburg, New York. TwoQueensCoffee.com. And from listener donations at WJFFRadio.org. Support for Radio Catskill comes from the Calicoon Theater an updated vintage movie theater with new releases, film festivals, nostalgic screenings, live music events, and more. Information and schedule at thecalicoontheater.com. Good morning. Welcome to Catskill Character. I'm your host, Donna Fellenberg, and I'm so pleased to have as my guest today filmmaker, artist, environmental activist, actor, and very happy to be a resident of Northeast Pennsylvania, Josh Fox. You know, I had a notion that this would be an opportunity to present Josh, not the environmental activist most people know him as through his films Gasland, Gasland 2, How to Let Go of the World and Love All the Things Climate Can't Change, and his soon-to-be-released film The Truth Has Changed. Not as that, but as the artist he truly is. But Josh disabused me of the idea that there is even a distinction between artist and activist. He considers himself an artist, and as he told me, and this is a quote, if you're not political, you're not an artist. And I love this quote from Josh, art is a question, activism is about answers. So I'm going with that. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Josh Fox. Welcome to Catskill Character, Josh. I'm just thrilled to have you here today. Thanks, Donna. It's great to be on. You were born in 1972, which is three years after Woodstock, and your parents built the house you're currently living in with some of their hippie friends, as you put it, that same year. Actually, I I don't live in that house anymore. Um, I live nearby. That house is very, very important to me. It's more important than the house, the land and the woods and the streams and the rivers which we were all trying to protect when the onslaught of fracking came. Actually, there are pictures of my mom with me in the womb standing on the foundation. So it's pretty much like the summer that I was born, I was born in July, my, my birthday is July 24th, uh, 24-7, always on, it's like I, I like to say. <laughs> um, and so, you know, she, you can see her, you know, pregnant as the house is just, the foundation is being laid. So as my family grew, the house grew as well. Your parents have very different backgrounds, I understand. Would you mind telling us a bit about them? My father came to America in the 50s as basically a war refugee uh, and a Holocaust survivor. He was born in Kazakhstan in Russia, fleeing the Nazis. And uh, my grandfather got a tip on one day in their village in Poland, which was Ludge, that the Nazis were going to round up all the Jews the very next morning. Mm. And so he said, that's it. We're leaving right now. We're going. And he left with my grandmother. Um, and I think they had one child, my father's oldest brother, Mayor. And they fled that evening and made it all the way across Russia to Kazakhstan, where eventually my father was born right before the end of the war uh, in 1945. Um, 
but uh, it was an incredible journey of, of like amazing hardship. And then after the, the, the war was over, all of their relatives had been killed. Nine brothers and sisters, my uh, grandfather and my grandmother, all of their extended family. There were very few people left. But they went back to Poland. A lot of Jews actually returning to their homes were shot on their front porch because they went back to their old house and somebody else was living in it. And then, boom, they would be killed. My uncle Mayer uh, was shot in the eye as a child um, and who damaged his eye, lost his eye. And they said, you know what, this isn't safe. They moved to France. And then from France, uh, we were able to get a passage to the United States where they um, came to New York City. And my father grew up, uh, New York City really being his birthplace um, in a way as, as a person, learning English and learning to be an American. My mother was a you know, child of immigrants. Her father never spoke English. Was My mom's Italian on both sides, Calabrian um, and, and from northern Italy, from Torino. She was actually born in New York City. She was also um, kind of the black sheep of a family of black sheep. Her father committed suicide when she was five years old. She went through an extraordinary rough period where her, her mother basically tortured her. I think her mother really tortured her father as well. Um, and so she grew up in very, very rough circumstances, leaving the house at age 15. And my parents met at City College, which was free at the time. And that's the circumstances when they uh, started to try to branch out and be in, in the woods of Pennsylvania. That's where uh, I grew up in my early days. Wow, what a story. It's an amazing story. Yeah. yeah. And you know what's really amazing about both your parents? They suffered so much trauma, and they both became therapists. So it was so important <laughs> to them to help other people. Yes, or at least to try to you know understand their own journeys as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, you said something interesting to me earlier. You said that the because you didn't have any extended family, the woods. The, the nature became kind of like family to you. I was a young child and then eventually moved to, to New York City where the house became more of a part-time situation. Um, but yeah, I, I feel very much like those woods were my family. Um, those woods were my you know extended uh, understanding of life on Earth, um, not just you know the, the trees, but also the animals and the water. Mm -hmm. um, when you grow up in nature like that, when you grow up, with a sensibility of the natural world and its rhythms and the way that it works, you you really understand and have a different respect for the principles of nature, um, which is what my film that I've been working on all year is about. Uh, it's about the principles of nature. It's called The Edge of Nature, which I've been working, you know, in, in the woods, uh, immersed for almost a year. But also, you know, New York City, all my classmates, my friends, my community, going to, uh, you know, public school in New York City as, a, as one of the first generation of kids who were in an integrated school, I think, before the resegregation came with gentrification. New York City is now the most segregated school system in the country. But we grew up with a sense of that gorgeous mosaic that David Dinkins talks about, that, that incredible diversity. And so the, the immigrant families and first generations and the people of New York City really became what I consider my family situation because we had no extended family really, really on either side. So community and, and nature being two things that are extremely important to me. Well, you did have some hard times growing up. You know, there was a lot of stress, Sarah's in your family, uh, but you also had those beautiful times escaping to the country, yet you couldn't escape 
the problems that your parents were having, and you began to act out. You, you told me that you tried to set fire to your school at one time. <laughs> <laughs> so I, we, that classifies as acting out, I believe. How did, how did this get turned around? Well, my parents were um, really troubled, and their traumas, I think, added up to a, a nightmare situation for the yeah. two of them, where they both really uh, fought, and was it was extraordinarily traumatic for, for years and years and years. Um, and also the house sort of got caught in the middle of all of that. So it was really much later that I ended up being there to try to take care of it. But for me, music, art, I was a musician, I played drums, I played in bands in CBGBs and, and The Bitter End and all these amazing clubs down in New York City when I was like, too young to get into those clubs. I started off as a musician and I discovered the theater when I was busted for uh, smoking pot at school when I was, I think I was like 12 and I got in a lot of trouble. And, you know, uh, there was a police precinct in my school at the time, which was a very scary place to be hauled into. I don't know if it was a precinct, but it was definitely a cop station, like on the first floor of the school. And so from that bust, uh, I thought I was going to get in a lot of trouble, um, but what happened was my stepbrother, Kevin, was pr- premiering a play he w- in his school in Brooklyn, like all the way across town. So we all had to go to this opening of this play. And so when I had gotten in this all this trouble, um, and yes, I did. I had detention for six months. I tried to light the school on fire. It was not a nice place. It was a terrible place. I don't remember learning anything. I was just, you know, being like a, I was like a metalhead kid at the time. I, uh, we were going to all the metal shows. Um, you know, we would go see Merciful Fate and Motorhead and, and uh, Motley Crue. And, and really, really, we had no parental supervision whatsoever. We were just out on the street all the time. Um, so, you know, and we would go, if we had no art classes. So we would go and look at graffiti and we would walk around New York City and go see the graffiti. And we would cut school and go to 48th Street and look at all the guitars and play guitars and play bass and play, play metal music. And so anyway, um, I, I was sort of shanghaied out of that moment into this theater uh, where my brother Kevin was playing. And I, and I loved the play. It was a play called The Poet and the Rent by David Mamet. And I started kind of like, I, I looked at the guy on stage and, I, and in the middle of this maelstrom, I kind of channeled this, this, this drama and thought, you know, I could, I could do that. And then I started to wanting to try to go out for, for plays. And, and luckily, I was able to switch schools. And I had this incredible uh, drama teacher named Taswell Thompson, who is now internationally famous. Um, and I started acting. And that was a real turning point, like a real turning point, like going from this drug culture of, of abuse and anger and um, Boom, right into the theater where the theater accepts your rage. The theater accepts your your strife um, and helps you channel it. So I was doing Shakespeare. I was doing Arthur Miller. I was doing Brecht, uh, the great plays, um, which really taught me how to use that, all of that pent up insanity um, for creative purposes and, and for uh, and really learning the essence of drama, which is justice and justice being tied back to how do we um, escape, uh, you know, a sense of of abuse or abusing of the earth? So that's where where all my work is located is in those great dramas that bring about a sense of justice for the world. 
And didn't you get to direct for the first time when you were in high school? Yeah, I directed The Glass Menagerie. Uh, it was my choice. Um, it was my senior project. And I played Tom. Um, and that project, uh, as well as, you know, look, when you learn from the great masters, Tennessee Williams, Arthur Miller, Shakespeare, the Greeks, it instills in you a sense of what dramatic structure really is and how, how that works. And also of poetry and, and of the beauty of that. Uh, so, you know, I, I was very, very lucky to be immersed. Um, it's really like, you know, the great masters of drama taught me uh, morality. It taught me history. It taught me uh, psychology. Uh, it's all there. When you graduated from having this really fantastic experience at Columbia Prep, you went to Oberlin College, which is in the middle of cornfields in Ohio. But <laughs> it's, it's, it's one of the most progressive schools in the country. What were the highlights there for you? Um, was a very cool place. Um, I couldn't stand the weather. It was gray from October to May, which is my principal reason for leaving. I ran out of money in the middle of my second year and they, they informed me that there was no more money. And I said, you know, all right. So I went part time and I, I started to direct. I directed a play called Hurley Burley by David Rabe. Ron Russell was in and Ron Russell had directed me in a play called Orphans by Lyle Kessler. So we were really operating at Oberlin like it was our own little experimental theater drama place. We had we had found a little room in the basement of Warner, which is the theater building, and converted it into a theater. We called it Studio Four. I don't know, I think it's, they're still using it today, but it was like a storage room. We said, can we use this for a theater? We, we made a small theater in there for like, you know, like, you know, you could fit 40 people in there. We were doing our own work. Ron Russell, by the way, I still work with today. He's the director of um, Epic Theater Ensemble. He is the director of my new uh, play called The Truth Has Changed, mm -hmm. which we've made into a film. So 30 years later, we're still we're still wow. at it. And so I really felt like I didn't want to be in school. Um, it was not where I wanted to be. I wasn't learning. I, I felt very um, socially constrained and very politically just sort of in a, in a place where I was. Uh, I just felt like that was not the place where I wanted to be. So I moved to Chicago. Um, an old friend of mine who was starting an equity company in, in Chicago called the Eclipse Theater Company, and they were doing their first play. And she said, I have a role for you in this Lanford Wilson play. And I said, absolutely out of there. So I dropped out of school and I moved to Chicago and I took a job taking care of school, uh, child, child care. I was doing school age child care uh, in, in inner city Chicago, west of the loop, where there, were, there was a lot of, of gang violence and, tr and lots of troubled uh, kids. And here I was, this troubled 20 year old trying to take care of them. Um, and playing at night at Steppenwolf Theater or the next theater in Chicago or the uh, the, the theater building, doing great, great uh, roles. I did um, a role in The Love of the Nightingale, directed by Amy Landecker, who you can see now um, on television. Uh, and and I, I did a play called Drunk Boat alongside of, uh, in that play, Drunk Boat was myself. I was playing a 15-year-old, even though I was 20. Michael Shannon was the lead. I was his best friend. Uh, you see him on a lot of movies these days. And Tracy Letts was in that play. It was directed by Eric Simonson at Steppenwolf. So, you know, after about a year at Chicago, I also felt that Chicago, with its Midwestern mentality and its theater, which was a little bit, I don't know, I, didn't, I couldn't find the right theater that I wanted to be a part of. It felt very, very white, very suburban, very, um, you know, very realist. I wanted to make different kinds of weird things. So I ended up applying to Columbia University, where Ann Bogart was teaching, and I really wanted to learn from her and luckily, I got in to, to Columbia, and, and Ann, Bogart, Ann Bogart became my, my mentor after that. 
Well, Josh, um, there's so much more we could say about those early years, but we have to take a break here. And I did ask you to bring your banjo today. So would you mind taking us out for the break with a little banjo? No problem. I'll play a, a, a new tune uh, that I wrote for The Edge of Nature. after a short break. Hi, I'm Amy Brightfield, Livingston Manor resident and WJSF Board of Trustees member. We're really excited about all the great things that are happening here at WJSF, and we're looking for new members to join the team. Join the Board of Trustees who are supporting the mission and direction of your community radio station. Email getonboard at wjsfradio.org. That's G-E-T-O-N-B-O-A-R-D at wjsfradio.org. Thank you for listening. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. This is Catskill Character, and if you've just joined us, my guest today is Josh Fox. The first half of the show focused on Josh's background. In the second half of the show, we're going to discuss his work. Josh, you've really packed a lot of life into the years between 20 and today. The ironic thing is, you told me you certainly didn't intend to become a documentary filmmaker. You told me Gasland was a detour and politics was a departure from where you you saw yourself headed. My work has always been really, really intensely political, both in terms of the music that I've always uh, worked on and also just in terms of the plays that I've always gravitated towards. The political is a fundamental part of art. There is no art that doesn't have an ideology to it. Every single piece of art has an ideology, whether that's stated or unstated. And so for me, you know, working on uh, music and film and theater, it's always been a political undertaking. What was different about Gasland was that I had never made a documentary before. Uh, when I was 23 years old, I um, wound up in Thailand with uh, an American company that was doing a, a workshop festival in Thailand with all these great Asian theater companies from Indonesia, from Thailand, from Japan, uh, from the Philippines, from Korea. And I uh, discovered that when I got to Thailand that these Americans were behaving sort of in an ugly way that I didn't that I didn't like. They were they were being very sort of culturally offensive in lots of ways. So I ended up quitting the American company and starting to work with all these actors from from Asia. And so I founded this company called International Wow, which was a, a group of very diverse artists from all over the world where we were coming together as this first generation that grew up in globalization to deal with the Esperanto of pop culture on stage and of all of our political strife that we were going through worldwide in terms of economic inequality and wars. An international WOW company, we created you know dozens of plays. We would make two or three a year, and we did it in a devised way where I would interview the actors about their lives. And when I was interviewing them, they would write their own characters, trying to be as democratic as possible in, in a theater, which is very difficult because you have a director and the director is this sort of benign 
um, dictatorial <laughs> kind of force. We did try to strive to create a, a work of, that was going to be both universal, but also um, very deeply political in terms of, of, of dealing with global oligarchy and global um, hegemony. So, you know, the work of International WOW lent itself towards interviewing people as I was interviewing the actors, learning about their cultures, and we were, were in intense dialogue back and forth with each other. That really lent itself towards when I wanted to make this documentary, interviewing real people, learning how to tell their stories, <laughs> real people, quote unquote, um, not actors, so that all the skills that I had learned with International Wow and creating plays forever really came to bear on creating the crafted story, which is Gasland. I, I, I think of Gasland and all my documentaries as works of art and works of drama. First, they're obviously factually true because they're works of journalism. Um, so it's different than making fiction. But the rules still apply when you're storytelling. So when you're doing this kind of storytelling, you know, having done 25 different plays before getting to that film, you know, it wasn't as if it was my first uh, project. Although many people thought it was. They thought, oh, my God, this guy just came out, yeah. of the came out of nowhere and brought us this thing. But it was really the product of, of two decades of, of being disciplined about storytelling. Right. Another overnight sensation. <laughs> that's, that's not an overnight sensation. You know, there's three images that I think of when I think of you. The first one, of course, is the seminal moment in Gasland when Mike Markham lit his water on fire. I think you said, that's not supposed to happen. <laughs> yeah. And the second one is the time you got arrested in D.C. for unlawful entry for trying to film a House Science Committee meeting on fracking. And then the third image that I always have in my mind is the shot of you and how to let go of the world and love all the things that climate can't change when you're lying in the snow and you let go of the drone and it flies up and up. I looked at your face and I saw the kid who probably played in that very spot. And I wondered to myself, how does he keep himself together? being hip deep in the environmental holocaust we're in, seeing all the things that he sees. How does he do it? You know, that's a great question. And thank you for going through those three movies. All of my films are at joshfoxfilm.com right now. People can watch them for free during COVID. Except Gasland 2, which you mentioned, which was where I got arrested in Congress. I mean, I go back to a saying of Sandra Steingraber, what we love, we must protect. I think fundamental to our human experience is, is love. And if we, if we shut out love, we, we lose our, our sense. And I think that that love is, is a very, you know, childlike awareness. You know, you have to, uh, you know, why deny the obvious child, what, what Paul Simon would say. Um, and that, that, uh, that curiosity and that inquiry and that constant sense that there is hope on the horizon, even in the most dire circumstances, I think, is, is drives those those projects. You know, it's like we are not going to let the oil industry beat us down. Mm -hmm. We are not going to do it. And part of that is succumbing to the depression and the meaninglessness of the society that they are driving. You know, we do not want to see our woods become a strip mall. We do not want to see our, uh, our, our beauty of, of, of uh, the watershed become an oil field. Um, you know, we have to say this is a space for humanity and this is a place for nature. And these things are simply more important than your profit margins. So, you know, there is no, there is no um, choice but to fight. 
And that film, How to Let Go of the World, uh, is really about encountering the climate despair that so many people are in right now. And I, and I suffer this too. And saying, how do we defeat that? How do we let go of the world and love all the things climate can't change? Climate change is not going to make us build 50,000 more strip malls. Climate change is not going to tell us that we have to surrender our, our streets to cars. Those are human choices. And so what we have to do is try to preserve our humanity and fight for the things that we really uh, would make us happy. Because the truth of the matter is, consumer culture doesn't make us happy anyway. Basing yeah. our society on greed and competition, on incarceration and racism, on, on uh, uh, those are the things that, that we are being taught to think make us happy. But in fact, it's quite the opposite. Those things don't make us happy. Those things make us unhappy. And when we look at the billionaire class, they are people who have a hole inside of them that no amount of money will fix. You know, that cannot possibly be the pinnacle of human civilization. We have to uh, look to nature, to the principles of nature, and say, what is it that brings us fulfillment and satisfaction and happiness? And those are the things that I think I'm trying to fight for in my films. And I think that those are the things that the subjects of the documentary speak, but also the characters that I'm writing you know, that we're trying to, to instill in us a different sense of value. We've reached the pinnacle of what this idea of infinite growth is. And we know it is apocalypse. We have to repair our planet here. We have to talk, talk about sustainability. Uh, we have to talk about how we take care of people um, rather than continue to, um, you know, fuel the insanity of this rich class that will destroy everything because they don't understand um, how it how unhappy they really are um it's hoarding it's not it's a mental illness uh that type of grief everything that you just said is so important and the fact that we live in this culture of comfort we, we think we're making ourselves more comfortable by accumulating more and more but we're actually making ourselves more uncomfortable i read a really fascinating statistic the other day that i think it was 78 percent of people who died of covid were obese or overweight. 72% of Americans are obese or overweight. So that statistic doesn't tell you anything. It's just that we are obese and overweight. And in so many ways, we have to examine where we've you know, come to with this idea that everything has to be convenient, everything has to be comfortable. What that ends up happening is we, we work too hard for too little money to serve that oligarchy and to serve the billionaire class when we talk about creating comfort, what we're actually doing is creating wealth for those people. We need to have a, a raise in the minimum wage. We need to have uh, a greater sense of social and economic equality. Uh, and those things are policy decisions, but they're also value-based decisions. So yes, I, I think when we talk about everybody being uh, you know, comfortable all the time, I also think about how it is, people love to be challenged. People love to have tests of will. In sports, you don't go, oh, how comfortable are you? <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm. Um, and I think that what we have to say to ourselves is like, that's, that's also our discipline within our art. That's also our discipline, um, you know, in many other things. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that um, we should make life harder for each of ourselves. But I think that uh, what, we've, what we've done is, is decided that we've put convenience and comfort in the wrong arena. We think of comfort as a Walmart or as a product. Comfort is a tree. You know, convenience is the fact that I can walk down and pick a raspberry. You know, that's convenient. 
in going to a store to find a raspberry that's wrapped in plastic and covered in pesticides is what we've de- is what we've defined convenience as. But that's actually inconvenience. Nature provides us comfort. Nature provides us convenience far better than this uh, toxic system does. Um, but we have decided to define it in that way, which I think is is the great swindle of this current system. Josh, I just want to thank you so much for coming on today. We've run out of time, actually. But I do want to remind the listeners that your new film, The Truth Has Changed, is going to be coming out. And they can probably go to your website at some point and find out the particulars about that. So thank you so much, Josh. And thank you so much for being the radical, amazing Catskill character that you are. (laughs) Thank you so much, Donna. It's great to be on. This has been Catskill Character. I'm your host, Donna Fellenberg, and my guest today has been Josh Fox. His website is joshfoxfilm.com. Catskill Character is on every Saturday at 11.30. Please join me then for more fascinating conversations with characters of the Catskills. Thank you so much for listening. Support for Radio Catskill comes from the Calicoon Theater an updated vintage movie theater with new releases, film festivals, nostalgic screenings, live music events, and more. Information and schedule at thecalicoontheater.com. Support for WJFF comes from Two Queens, offering coffee, tea, and bees. Located in Pete's Plaza, Narrowsburg, New York. TwoQueensCoffee.com. And from listener donations at WJFFRadio.org. Hi, my name is Aaron Bendage, and this week I'm starting a new program on WJFF called Borscht Beat. Every week on this program, I'll play a selection of Jewish music from my vast collection of LPs. I'll also be drawing from the greater selection of music available in the digital world. So tune in each week, and you'll never know what you'll find in the great world of Jewish music. Sunday afternoon at 1 on Radio Catskill. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. Support comes from the Homestead School, Montessori Education, preschool through early college with campuses in Glens Bay and Hurleyville. Building the intelligence, creativity, connection, and skills for an ecological future since 1978. Homesteadschool.com. From the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York. Riverreporter.com. And from listener donations at WJFFRadio.org. Support for Radio Catskill comes from the Neversink General Store, featuring an award-winning chef, smoked barbecue year-round, local products and catering, now offering takeout, neversinkgeneralstore.com.